Bibles. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6. Raise your hand, they'll give you one. And uh, you guys can just open up to Ephesians 6, if you would, while I'm wiping the tears from my eyes. Ephesians chapter 6. And uh, what we do at Calvary Chapel is we stand for the reading of the word of the Lord, and then we sit for the word of the teacher. One we honor, the other we tolerate. And so we're going to stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Now, we finished at verse 9 last week uh, as we're going through this epistle. The word epistle means letter. It's a letter Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. He was in prison. Paul spent a lot of time in prison. Uh, actually, at the moment he's writing this, he's chained to a Roman guard. And so we're going to see through the portion of, of uh, Ephesians 6 when he talks about the armor of God. He is going to be going through the entire armament of a Roman centurion. Um, and... Uh, and he's writing this letter to encourage the church. And we've gone through our position in Christ in the first three chapters, uh, what a life in Christ look lo- looks like. We've seen that a spirit-filled life will affect us as wives. It'll affect us as husbands. It'll affect us as children, as parents, as employees, as employers. We've gone through this whole picture. And now Paul is going to summarize this, this, this passage, this letter. And he begins uh, in verse 10 with the word, Finally. And that, that is really what he wants to do. He says, finally, with everything that we've studied, everything I've told you, finally, this is what you need to understand. And we're going to camp on this today, but we're going to pick up verse 10. I'll read out loud if you'll follow along with me silently. Finally, my brethren, <clears throat> be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. And so recurring theme in this is stand, stand, stand. But I want to repeat verse 10 and we're going to read it together out loud. Verse 10. Are you ready? Let's begin. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. So he's saying, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Very key ingredient if we're going to continue on to understand the armor of God. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on the study of his word. Lord, thank you for your word. And Lord, in a day and age where we're plagued by fear, and there's so many things that are uncertain, and we're all kind of left swirling, wondering what the future holds. Today, we settle into the hand of the God who holds that future in his hand, who said on the cross, it is finished, who declared that we don't fight for victory, we fight from victory, that he's calling us today, Lord, you're calling us today to stand, to be strong in the Lord, that we would, we would have this, this power of your might in our lives, that we would have the whole armor of God, And Lord, I pray that today the fear would be dispelled and strength would be established. For your word says you haven't given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. And so God, as we undertake the study of your word, I pray that you'd minister to every heart. You'd strengthen us in the faith. And Lord, we ask your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, have a seat. As... I've been undertaking this study uh, going through this epistle to the church at Ephesus and seeing our position in Christ, that we're seated in the heavenly realms, that we've been sealed 
sealed, that this is a done deal, that God has, has put his security upon our lives through his Holy Spirit, that we are children of God, that we are, we are continually being filled with the Holy Spirit, that we're no longer walking in the old ways, but that we're walking in this renewal of our mind and that we're new creatures in Christ and that, you know, all of a sudden the areas in our life that we struggled with and as, as again, as we, we revisit Ephesus and as I've shared with you on a number of occasions, I've, I've had the privilege to, to visit Ephesus and this was a city that had this temple to Artemis, a thousand temple prostitutes coming down into the city uh, every night to ply their trade. It was a, uh, uh, a port city, also a trade route and, um, and so prostitution was, was very prevalent. The city was a mess. Um, every woman within the, 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 the boundaries of the city uh, that resided there was required two times a year to offer her services in the Temple of Artemis as a prostitute. And so every family had been affected by sexual immorality, sexual struggles. And uh, you had uh, incest, you had uh, child molestation, uh, you, you had bestiality, you had everything you could imagine was all prevalent within the city of Ephesus. And, and this city was um, an, an awful city. And Paul comes into the city and he begins to talk about what a family looks like, what a strong culture looks like. And he begins to outline and establish that. And we've gone through this. We've gone through this picture of, 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 the, of the design that God had established and what he desires for a family to reestablish and strengthen. And Ephesus would go on to be a center of revival that Christianity would spread into Europe through not only Ephesus, but also Philippi. And, um, and all of a sudden, a transformation occurs in this city. But it's, it's one piece at a time, because not only was there uh, uh, sexual struggles within the city and all kinds of, of, of deviance that occurred, but in addition to that, what was also prevalent in the city was drug addiction. Um, instead of, of, of calling it drug addiction or saying anything along those lines or alcoholism, uh, those things that they were subject to that they couldn't conquer those addictions that they had, they wouldn't call them addictions. Instead, they would just deify them and call them gods. And that's where you get the god Bacchus, who was the god of alcohol. Uh, Artemis was the god of sensuality. And, and, and instead of looking at it and saying, it's got a hold on my life and I can't break away from it, uh, they would just call it a god and then they would worship that god. And now the Lord comes in. He says, I am the Lord your God. You'll have no other gods before me. First commandment, declaring that you will worship me in spirit and in truth. And he, he goes on to describe what that looks like. And as these people come to yield their lives to the Lord and all of the, the baggage and all the background of their life. And listen, we all come into this room and we we got baggage. I mean, we, we've got all kinds of stuff that we can talk about uh, ad infinitum. Everybody's got a struggle. Everybody's got a skeleton in the closet. Uh, maybe even a multitude of skeletons. Yours may just be a boneyard. And, and, as, and as we come in and we take a look at these things and we open up that closet, God says, we're going to work through this piece by piece. And he's a gentle and patient God, uh, patient and long-suffering. And he wants to reestablish and strengthen your life that we've been created in the image of God. He's got a purpose for our lives. But it all comes down to one thing, that we're willing to say, God, uh, all the struggles in my life, all the ways that I've learned to cope with life, all the ways that I've come to try to to deal with life and all of its complexity, uh, Lord, I'm willing to submit that and lay that at, at your altar and say, God, uh, have your way with me. Thy will be done. Lord, if there's areas in my life you want to change, if there's things you want to do in my life, I submit myself to that and I'm open to it. And so the Lord uh, goes on to say, this is how we'll work through this. And he, he lays out a prescription on how to minister. But, but there's an enemy of our soul. There is good and there's evil. There is God and there's the devil. 
And, and there are absolutes. There's moral absolutes just like there's physical absolutes. There's the law of gravity. There's the law of love. And these, these moral absolutes that are established are these ideas that God says these are non-negotiables and, and, and these are to be established if you're to find joy. And the Bible says in him is the fullness of joy. Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher, said we've been created with a God-shaped void that, that is, as it says in Romans, that we've been created subject to vanity, that there's nothing in all the world that satisfies us. There's always a longing. There's always an emptiness. There's always a struggle in some capacity. And God says, I've come that you might have joy and he says, and I've also come that you might have life and life more abundant. But he says, the fullness of joy is found in me. The fullness of joy is found in me. We try to find it anywhere we can. We try to somehow cope with life by finding some sort of solution in a, in a myriad of ways. And, and, and we've all gone down that road. We've all got pictures of how we've tried to cope with life and how we've struggled. And, and we find ourselves waking up and saying, you know, I, this is a line I said I'd never cross. And you wake up and you're on the other side of that line going, well, I got to draw a new line now. And, and I've got more things I got to deal with. And, 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 and it doesn't help as, as we play the game of ostrich where we put our head in the sand and we say there's no such thing as a devil. This is a machination of man. He has designed it so that he can scare us into um, submission and a, and, a, and a worship of God. And, and uh, that, that there is a devil and he's real. And so you know, I don't buy it. And, and I don't see how you can hear the voice of God. Well, I would tell you right now, in this room, there's thousands of voices traveling through this room that you can't hear. Thousands of voices traveling in this room that you can't hear. You guys are going, oh, you're nuts. Well, give me a radio, and I'll tune in. And you'll hear countless radio stations as we pick up all these voices in the air that are traveling through our room right now. And then, and then you're going to rationalize that. Well, that's radio waves. And then you're going to say, well, I don't believe ghosts exist. But then you have some man who walks in with a, 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 you know, a thermal recognizer and, and he gets a blob on the screen and you turn it into a TV show and everyone's captivated to see what's around the corner and, and you know, a plasmic reading and all of a sudden, woo, and he, we give him a PhD at uh, you know, Harvard and he goes on to win a Nobel Prize because he's figured out that there's some sort of a, an entity hiding in the room. But when it comes to saying there's good and there's evil and there's a God and there's a devil, uh, we dismiss that. And that's because we don't want to come face to face with our mortality, nor do we want to be accountable to a creator. But even in that capacity, we, we, to dismiss that there's a creator and that we've been created by some primordial suit by accident, and yet we live in a world of order. We live in a world of order. It's, 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 it's baffling to me how you can dismiss the fact that we're held in a delicate balance uh, from the sun. If we were to move 5% closer, we would burn to death. 5% uh, further away, we'd freeze to death. We're in this delicate balance in our solar system. Uh, there's seasons that we can count on that our farmers plant by. Uh, we can direct ourselves through the night sky because there's a design and an order to it. We know where the North Star is. It's held on, a, uh, on this delicate plane. We know where North is. And, and you just, you look at all of this and, and you see the intricacies of the, of the human body. And even to say that we've evolved from a single cell creature, we even look at a single cell and it's so complex that, that it baffles evolution in, in and of itself. And, and, and we, we all have this emptiness, and we all struggle with guilt. We all struggle with uh, this accountability. We always cry out for something greater than us. When we stub our toe, we cry, and we, we scream. And, and, and yet it comes to a place where we recognize that there's a God, and, and there may be agnostics in the room, and an agnostic is, is the Greek definition of agnostic means without knowledge. It just means that I, I believe that there's a God. I just don't know who he is. Agnosis, without knowledge. 
But the idea of atheist, the Bible declares if, if a man says there's no God, he's a fool. I mean, that, that to me takes more faith to be an atheist than it does to be anything else on the face of the earth. It's baffling. I mean, just, just to watch as every child in my family having been born, and even with the adoption of Natasha, watching the significance of God's hand, how he orchestrates life, and to say that that just happened, the, to, to define the love that is in our heart that we'd be drawn to each other. What is this concept of love? Where does that come from? In a cosmic accident, why are there emotions that we would be drawn to one another, eth- uh, ethereal that is beyond uh, our emotions, and we declare that? Why, why would we look and say, that's wrong? I mean, e- even, even in the structure of life, when we try to deny God, we still move to the natural law of man to establish these principles that he's declared if we're going to find ourselves successful. And there's, there's laws that govern us. Where do those absolutes come from? And, and yet we dismiss God and we come up with everything we can to try to dismiss him. But the reality is he's there. And to say that there's no devil and to say that there's no God is just the ostrich approach to life where you put your head in the sand because you, you just don't want to deal with it. Now, there's also another approach to it where you would, you know, you, you would blame the devil for everything. You know, there's a demon in the door hinge, you know, and there's a demon in the seats. And I rebuke the demon of, of chocolate cake because he's possessed me. He possesses me every night, and I just love that demon. He's one of my favorites. We talk about spiritual mapping. We talk about ancestral sin. You just read Ezekiel 18, and ancestral sin is dismissed. A sixth grader could understand that. That doesn't mean that we have, we have things that affect us from our ancestors, but the idea that, you know, your, your aunt, you know, Martha died, and she left you, you know, uh, her lamp and, and the picture and her bowling ball and her demons... Uh, doesn't work. It just doesn't work that way. You know, my, my mom told me that my grandmother was the tarot card reader of Indianapolis and that she, you know, read tarot cards and tea leaves. And, and somehow am I supposed to be adversely affected by that? Now, there are traditions and we operate as parents from the concept of fear that we don't want what happened to us to happen to our children. And so we operate from fear. But the Bible says perfect love casts out all fear. And, and to operate in the context of fear and raising our children in fear is not the healthiest way to approach life. Perfect love casts out all fear. And, and the Apostle Paul is looking at the family saying, listen, there is a spiritual battle. There is good and there is evil. There is God and there is a devil. And he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And he is a roaring lion roaming about seeking whom he may devour. And he does operate in the realms of principalities of the air. And he, and, and, and he tries to captivate the hearts of men. He tries to dismiss God, and, and the greatest trick that, this, that the devil has pulled upon mankind is to convince us that he doesn't exist. But in the same regard, one of the greatest things he does is that, that he's convinced many Christians to ascribe to him more power than he's due. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. He isn't God's equal in evil, but he is the enemy of our soul. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy and he's limited. He, he's, he, the same way that he tempted Eve in the Garden of Eden is the same way that he tempted Jesus uh, in the wilderness. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. He's limited in the way he approaches things. But we're suckers. I mean, it's like we're like fish. We fall for the worm every time. You don't even have to change the worm. It's like, oh, a worm. And then why is it like a J? Oh, J for Jesus. And we eat it, and next thing we know, we're filleted. Did you see that? Did you see that? But we fall for the same tricks continually. And Paul says, listen, you have got to walk in such a way to realize that, yes, he, he, isn't, he, 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 he exists. 
He's not as big as you make him out to be, but in the same regard, he is a formidable opponent that you cannot handle on your own. You're not going to face him and deal with him on your own. He is going to chew you up and spit you out. You think about it, one angel wiped out 170,000 Assyrians. One angel. And Satan is, is, was, was God's most beautiful angel. They called him Lucifer, and he was the angel of, 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 the, of light, in a sense. And he's got power. He's got ability, and he, he, he operates in, in order. He's got dominions and structure. And, and as he operates in that capacity, he operates for the sole purpose of destroying anything created in the image of God, and that's you and me. And he does it through this, this operative of death. First, he, he, he causes mankind to realize that he's not there. And, and we talk about, and I did this last week, we talk about this idea of, of, of blaming Christianity for all the ills of the world. And we say, well, Christianity's responsible for, you know, the Salem witch trials. And Christianity's responsible for, for uh, the Inquisition. And Christianity's responsible for the Crusades. Yes, they were. Yes, they were. And then you, you think about the Salem witch, witch, tri, tri, uh, witch trials. Less than 20 people died in the Salem witch trials. Who ended it? A Christian. Who put it into context and said, these people are wrong. The Inquisition, less than 100,000 people died. 100,000 too many, but less than 100,000 people died. And who, how, did, how was it ended? By Christians. You, you go on to look further and you talk about the Crusades. Same thing. And really what happened is, is, is Christians came in and reestablished it and said, this has to end. Slavery was ended by Christians. You go, I don't know what, William Wilberforce. Hello, work with me. We can go through history and do a little history lesson. Even though there's revisionist history, it wasn't done by, by, by the free thinkers. It was done by Christians. And then we think, well, but, but atheism, and uh, that, that's never had a problem. Yes, it has. Let's look at what atheism has done upon the face of the earth when we remove God. Because the Bible says we've been created in the image of God. He's the one who gives us value. Where else are you going to get value? Who else places value? You talk about human rights. Who gives those rights? Our founding fathers said that there's certain inalienable rights endowed by our creator. If rights are given by government, then that is established by the men who hold the power. And if you don't fit their mold, you're out. You're out. That's what happened in the French Revolution. That's why the symbol of the French Revolution was a guillotine. Liberty, equality, fraternity. You weren't part of the fraternity. You weren't equal. And there was no liberty for you. It was just the guillotine. But with our founding fathers, the idea that we have certain inalienable rights endowed by our creator, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And, 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 and when we see this picture of what God has designed, that he's come that we might have life and life more abundant, but when we abandon God and, and we, we talk about human rights, where do those rights come from? And it's interesting that in every realm where atheism and God has been removed, what has been the, what, what has been the result? You want to talk about death. Let's look at uh, Stalin. Let's look at Mao Zedong. Let's look at Pol Pot. Let's look at Adolf Hitler. Billions of people die by the absence of God in the equation. Who is the one who gives a child's life significance? It's not based on whether that child is convenient or what. It, that is the significance of what, what God establishes. That every, every life is precious. The elderly, the young, and all in between. You know, I was reading this week that there's a, there's a young man that, that's got... Uh, some, some mental uh, struggles, and, and they've denied him a heart transplant, I believe is what it was. Why? Is his life less valuable? And so when we look at these things in life, God is the one who establishes our value. 
He establishes our value and he contends with the forces of darkness, not contends. He, he moves in our life that we would contend and stand in those truths. That we are going to be the ones who are going to be the defender of the defenseless. We're going to be that voice, even though people are going to hate it and fight against it and rail against it. We're going to be that voice. And I'll tell you what, Paul wasn't popular in Ephesus. Wherever he went, there was either a riot or a revival. You know, people didn't like Martin Luther King Jr., including the, the Christian realm, many of the pastors in the southern states. They didn't like him. And as he was in prison, they were saying, this is proof that, that, that you're on the wrong side of God. And he says, no, the proof is, is that you're not here with me. You should be here with me. We've been created in the image of God. That has no bearing on the color of our skin. Abraham Lincoln said, what, what is it? If one man is whiter than I am, that makes him better? What, does that mean the man who's now clear is going to be you know, far more substantial than the man who has you know, some sort of coloring? Even Paul goes on to say, slave, free, female, male, that we're all one in Christ. That was revolutionary in that time, in a, in a realm where half of the known world was slaves. Most of the Christians at that time were under slavery. And, 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 and now what happens is we see these people make a stand for it. The world is moved by it. Abraham Lincoln's popularity rating was less than probably 17% when he was in office. Before he even stepped foot in office, before he even took the... Uh, the, the realm as president of the United States, there was 11 death, death threats upon his life. He had to sneak into Washington, D.C. on a rail car dressed, in, in, many said, as a woman. And he was mocked and ridiculed in all the newspapers. And when he stood against slavery and he did the Emancipation Proclamation, many of the northern senators and congressmen said, this is a waste of time, it's not necessary. But he saw it as a calling. It was Elizabeth Keckley, his assistant, that, that believed that it was Abraham Lincoln came to Christ. And even William Herndon, his very dear friend, said that, that Lincoln came to Christ while in office. One of his favorite books that he read was the book of Job. It was dog-eared. You look at his personal Bible, it is dog-eared. He understood suffering. He understood that there are things worth fighting for. And life is one of them. And the emancipation of slaves is, is, is of God's heart to remove that bondage upon their lives. He came that we would have life and life more abundant, that they would know the truth and the truth would set them free. And what did he get in return? A bullet in the back of his head. You want to say that there's not evil? Oh, there's evil. There's evil. And when the Bible commands as Christians that we do good to those who spitefully use us and, and that we turn the other cheek, we're an easy target. We're an easy target. Do you realize as Christ hung upon the cross and he had the nails in his hand and the nail in his feet and he had the crown of thorns on his head and he had been whipped to to shreds and his back looked like hamburger meat and his face was so brutalized they pulled his beard out of his face it says that his own mother wouldn't have even recognized him and as he hung upon the cross do you realize who was hanging there it was the god who said light be and light was you realize at any moment he could have said death and all of, all of your life would have been a, 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 removed from you and you would have collapsed. All of us would have collapsed. Life as we know it would have been annihilated. He holds all things together by the word of his power. It wasn't the nails that held God to the cross. It was his love for us. That we would stand in his strength and his resurrection power to defend the defenseless. To declare hope to those who are oppressed. And as he was upon that cross and he was bleeding and dying. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You want to talk about an easy target. 
they spit upon the face of God. They mocked him. They put a bag over his head, tied his hands behind his back, and they sucker punched him. And they said, prophesy who hit you. You, you want to you talk about an easy target. He's an easy target. He laid down his life that we might have life. He was dying for the people that were killing him. He was loving the ones who hated him. And so as his disciples were to follow in the same line, we're easy targets. I marvel at the fact that how, how easily it is to attack a Christian in, in today's culture. Where is the same outrage in the Muslim community? We want to talk about human rights. We want to talk women's rights. We want to talk about any rights. What, where's the, why don't they rail against the Muslim world? They're not an easy target. You mess with them, they're going to behead you. Yes? So how do we fight a war? How do we fight a war against evil? When we're not allowed to fight back. How do you fight a war where your enemy is the one you're to love? This is tough. This isn't easy. How is Paul supposed to reach the city of Ephesus when, when the, the entire social, sociological makeup of that city is the antithesis of everything he stands for? How does he make an inroad into that city? Every city he went to, he was, he was kicked through the streets like a soccer ball and left in a prison to rot. Many times they left him to die. How do, how do you fight a war like that? How do you do it? And the answer, Paul says, is finally. Yes, these are all the things that, that God wants to implement in your culture and in your society and the things he wants to do in your life. And it's moved by love and that we're seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places and that he has bestowed upon us. We've been adopted, redeemed, forgiven. All of that is ours. This is who we are. First three chapters of the, of the book of Ephesians. This is who you are in Christ. You're a new creature in Christ. The old ways have passed and God is going to reestablish your family. I think about my own life as I've shared with you countless times in my own life. The last thing I would have thought of is that I would have been faithfully married for 22 years of my life. Five, ki five kids that loved me, and then I, would ha I, 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 would, I, I was anything but a faithful man. If you have any questions about that, you can talk to my sister. She, she was raised with me. She knows what a weasel. She knows. But the reality is God changes them. He's not finished with me yet. I got some rough edges, but I'm not who I was, but I'm not yet who I'm to become. But in the Lord, I'm complete. It's established. He who began a good work is faithful to complete it. And so with that understanding of what Paul decries in his entire epistle, he comes to the conclusion in chapter six. He says, all right, you want to know how you're going to do this? You want to know what this war is going to look like? It's going to get ugly. But here's how you fight it. Finally, finally, verse 10, my brethren. Be strong, be strong. Daniel yesterday, my, my oldest son, uh, he had three scrimmage games uh, and he had to, and I didn't have a chance to go to the games but my wife told me about it. And you know, Daniel's 13 years old. He's playing senior uh, Pacific League youth football. I think that's what they call it. And uh, he's on the line because he was center last year. He's a pretty big kid for center last year when he was playing juniors, but now he's playing seniors. 
I don't know what happened in a year, but I think the parents were feeding their kids growth hormones. That's all I got to say. Because, you know, you got, you got the defensive tackle and you got the, you know, defensive end, defensive tackle. So you got these two guys, you know, monster, monster, Daniel, monster, monster. And so here's the offensive line. Daniel's the center and you got these enormous guys on either side of him. And they're going, I don't know if Daniel's going to be able to be center this year. He's a little too small. And I go, what should we do? And he goes, well, feed him some juice. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And bulk, bulk him up. He was kidding. Uh, the, the coach isn't professing that we give children steroids. Please understand that. It was a joke. Okay. All right. You don't have to write the acorn and get an editorial thing going. But I'm looking at my boy, and, and you know, the, the, the teams he played the previous years are just as strong, and the kids have grown up in football, and, they're strong, and these kids have gotten bigger, and Daniel's kind of looking, and I go, Daniel, 2 Timothy 1.7, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. If David could go out against Goliath, you can go out against anybody. And if the coach puts you in at center, you play center. If the coach wants you to hold the ball for kick, for field goals, and hold the ball for field, wherever he puts you, you go there. Your job right now is to learn how to submit and to honor authority, and that's why the coach is in your life. Football is irrelevant to me. It's the structure. It's a rite of passage in the life of a young man. We have very few remaining in our culture today, but football was one of them. And he's gotten bruised and battered, and I don't want him to go on for a career and end up, you know, eating pudding in a rest home because, you know, you had a couple of concussions. But right now, it's not bad, Okay. But, but as he's playing, he, he goes against these teams. And in one team in particular, the kid was over 200 pounds yesterday on nose guard. Daniel's like maybe 100 pounds, you know, wearing a weight belt. And he's up against this kid that's twice his size. A kid has, he's, he's got his own zip code. He's so big. And as he goes up against him, he's, he's holding his own. He's holding his own. He's not complaining. Because what he does, he does in the Lord. And the battle belongs to the Lord. And the idea is be strong. I can look at Daniel and go, Daniel, you've got to be strong. Buckle up. Handle it. And, you know, we can declare that to anyone at any time in our life to be strong. I, I think about Lauren who's with us and as her husband is, is one of the very few people on the face of the earth who has accomplished passing through uh, SEAL team training. These are the elite of the elite of the elite. These, these men are ripped, and they're intelligent, and every one of them, most of them have college degrees even though they're enlisted. They're brilliant, sharp, strong, tough. Their marriages are in disarray. Many of them are struggling with alcoholism. A lot of them are going through the multiple deployments. Their lives are falling apart. They're strong. They're strong. They're the epitome of human strength, and yet they're frail. The strength about Sam Blair is that young man has a heart for the Lord and knows that his strength is in the Lord. Lauren's the same way. The idea of the power of prayer and sustaining that, not operating in a context of fear. That's the difference. Every one of us has something we struggle with. There's something that we're afraid of. That's why you whistle when you go through a a cemetery. Seminary, cemetery, same thing. But that's why you whistle. (laughs) We're all afraid of something. We're all afraid of something. How do we be strong? Is it because somebody looks at you and goes, be strong? That doesn't work. After a while, you go, shut up. But God doesn't just declare to us to be strong. The Apostle Paul, as he's writing this by the, by the hand of the Holy Spirit, he says, finally, my brethren, be strong. But he says, in the Lord and in the power of his might. And the word power is dunamai. 
where we get the word dunamis in, in Acts chapter 1-8, which is where we get in the English word dynamite. Dynamic, explosive power of God. Be strong in the power of God and in His might. In God. In God. In God. In God. You see, you don't have the Lord. You're fighting it all on your own. Good luck with that. Because death is knocking. And it's coming closer every day like a train on the train track as you're tied to the rails. And I don't care how strong you are and how much you bark at the night and howl at the stars and scream at God. You are nothing in the expanse of the universe. You are a gnat on the butt of an elephant. You're nothing. You're not strong. Death is coming. It's the great equalizer. I don't care how much money you have or what power you think you possess. But when you exhale your last breath, your kung fu grip on your possessions will be released. And you'll stand before power. You'll stand before the God of the universe to give an accounting of your life. And you want, you want to look at him and shake your fist and say, you owe me some answers. Why did you let that happen to me? And God says, because if I was to remove sin, I'd have to remove sinners. And I let you remain in my strength to come to a saving knowledge that your sin would be forgiven and you could be an instrument of righteousness to establish goodness on the earth. But you rejected me in bitterness. You were unwilling to lay your life down and say, whatever portion of my life, I give it to you. Because you wanted to be stronger than God and you demanded your own way. And I'm a gentleman, God says, and I gave you your own way. Be careful what you ask for, you might get it. But we're all afraid. We're all afraid. As I was laying with Daniel and I told you that, Daniel and Michael, and we heard the gunshots outside of our window and Daniel got up to look the window and I said, Daniel, what are you doing? He says, Dad, I don't want him to come in here. I said, son, they're not going to get in here. They're going to have to pass through a legion of angels. We're sovereign, excuse me, we're, we're immortal until God's done with us. Nothing will happen to us till it first passes through the sovereign hand of God. And if he allows injury to befall our family, it, Romans 8, 28, it works together for good. We don't have to be afraid, son. He's in control. We don't have to completely understand it, but he works it together for good. Trust him. I've even found out God has used Alzheimer's in my father's life to bless my family. All things work together for good. My sister will testify, as siblings, we've never been closer. Never. That's God working all things together for good. And this is what the Lord does in our life. In the strength of God, be strong in the Lord. But you have to be in Him. You have to be in Him. You have to declare Him to be your Lord. You have to declare Him to be your Savior. You have to declare Him to be your God if you want His strength. You can't have his strength without his authority. It doesn't work that way. It's like wanting all the benefits of the job without wanting to submit to the boss. You don't have a job. Yes? Anyone struggle with that? I'm, I'm sorry. There wasn't enough giggle. That's the way it works. He calls the shots. He calls the shots. And in relation to this, it says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. 
I, I want to have Mark come up here and share. So I'm going to walk you through just a couple of instances in the scripture where this, this holds true. One of my favorites is, this, is found in the book of Joshua, chapter 1. I'll read it to you. It's verses 6 through 9. Joshua, Moses has died. Joshua's getting ready to enter into the promised land. And there's enemies throughout the land. They got the, the uh, Ammonites, the, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the termites. They got them all. And he's got to get in there and conquer them. And so it says in verse 6 of chapter 1, Be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. God's speaking to Joshua. He says, Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it for then you will make your way prosperous for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success verse 9 listen have i not commanded you he said be strong and courageous have i not commanded you but that's not all here comes the ingredients that that was present in in chapter 6 of ephesians it's also present in joshua chapter 1 be strong and of good courage do not be afraid nor be dismayed listen fly. Listen, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Is that true for you? Is he the Lord of your life and is he with you wherever you go? Have you trusted in the salvation of his son? Have you received him as your Lord and Savior? Have you been reconciled to God that your sin has been covered by the blood of Christ? Because blood must be shed for the remission of sin. And as you receive Christ as your Savior, God is with you. Not just with you, in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. It goes on later in Joshua chapter 5. This is one of my favorites. Verse 13, it says, And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho. This is a big city, huge walls. He's like, I don't know how we're going to conquer this sucker. And we find out that they marched around it for six days, you know, <laughs> you know, marching around it like that's really doing. And seventh day, blow trumpets. Like that's a really great game plan, God. The, you know, you imagine Joshua telling his generals, uh, this is a game plan. Uh, are we going to scale it with walls and tear pits and we're going to, no, 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 no. Uh, God said we're going to march around for six days and then on the seventh day, <laughs> this is a doozy, we're going to blow trumpets. <laughs> Who's with me? <laughs> you can imagine the generals going, what kind of, what, what? What kind of a battle plan is that? But how did Joshua ever get to a place where he was willing to trust? It says in verse 13, it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked. And behold, a man stood opposite him with a sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? So Joshua's surmising the situation with Jericho. He's trying to figure out a battle plan. He sees this guy standing over there, just this, this amazing figure of a human being. He walks over and the sword's drawn. He goes, Are you for us or against us? Now the only answer is, well, I'm for you. Or the only answer is, I'm with your adversaries. It's interesting how the man answers. The answer, so he said, no. The man answered, no. (laughs) Are you for us or for our adversaries? No. (laughs) But then he repeats, but as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. It was a Christophany, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. Joshua fell on his face to the earth, worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? What God was saying is, I'm not for you or for your adversaries. It's not a question of if, if, if I'm on your side. The question is, are you on my side? Are you willing to let me be God? 
There's two great truths in the universe. There is a God and you and I are not him. And, and, and Joshua recognizes that. Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take your sandals off your foot for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Another picture that, that I, I, I love is in Isaiah chapter 40. He says, have you not known, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might. He increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. How do we know this about young men? I was thinking about 1 Samuel 17 with David when he walks out into the Valley of Elah, and he goes on to take Goliath. Forty days this man had mocked the armies of Israel. He stood almost 10 feet tall. paralyzed. Even Saul, who was uh, head and shoulders above any other man in all of Israel. He was the tallest guy in all of Israel, and he was the king. He should be the one out there fighting Goliath. He was even paralyzed. They hear word that this kid David is willing to take on Goliath, and Saul calls him into his tent, into the king's tent, and, and he looks at him, and he's like, well, you got to wear this armor, and he starts to put Saul's armor onto David. Verse 37, moreover, David said, listen, I'll tell you how I'm going to take down Goliath. He said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And then Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. And so Saul clothed David with his armor and he put a bronze helmet on his head and he also clothed him with a coat of mail. David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I can't walk with these. I haven't tested them. So David took them off. I don't need your armor. I have the Lord. If God is for me, who can be against me? There's no weapon fashioned against me that will stand. Nothing and no one will ever come against me if I'm in the will of God. Verse 45 of chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, then David said to the Philistine as he walks out, and he says, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defiled. Or excuse me, that whom you have defied. He says, I recognize that your weaponry your physical weaponry is far superior than my own. But here's the problem, Goliath. You have opened up a can of Jesus. You, you took on God. You've defied him. I am only a scalpel in the hands of a surgeon. And he will wield me as he sees fit. And you are going to be cut up. He says, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcass of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and with spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. The idea in this passage of scripture very clearly in Ephesians 6 when it says stand, you think that I enjoy repeating every Sunday the importance of prayer in the church? Prayer is our declaration of dependence upon God, and that's what it means to stand, that we are strong in Him. A church on its knees is a church that's powerful and conquers great foes. It's not a church that has programs and has funding and has buildings and has all kinds of gimmicks and has the flying Willenda brothers and the prophesying pink flamingos. A church that's powerful is a church that's on its knees in prayer, 
relying upon God and seeking where he wants to go and what he wants to do. This isn't a game. This is the reality of how a church operates. I will keep having Pastor Dave share about prayer every Sunday night. I will keep encouraging the body to pray because this is what it means to stand. We will not win this any other way. Where prayer is concentrated, power falls. We're not talking to an empty void in space. He is real. And he moves upon the prayers of his people. And with that understanding, I'm going to have Mark come up. Now, before he comes, I want to tell you something about Mark. This is a man who has every reason to be embittered to the church. This is a man who can look at the church and say the church is weak and it didn't meet my needs. Guess what? The church isn't here to meet your needs. God called you to serve. And if there's a need that hasn't been fulfilled in the church, then God has appointed you to do it. Jesus came to serve, not to be served. And in those areas where we get hurt, we have two options. We can either be bitter or we can be better. And when I heard Mark's story, I was moved by it. Where do you hear it? Because this is a man who understands what it means to stand in the strength of the Lord. No man could have gotten through what he did without the Lord. Would you welcome with me Mark Taylor?